and you feel like everybody else is on a glide path to success and only we are struggling. And it makes us feel bad about ourselves. It makes us feel like there's something, there's something wrong with me. Like everybody else has their act together except me. Hello, hello. I welcome you to another episode of Reaching Your Goals. Reaching Your Goals is a career podcast where you get the insights to go from motion to action, making things happen. I'm your host, Johanna Herbst. I'm a certified executive and career coach and a management consultant with an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. My mission is to inspire you to reach your goals, lead with kindness, and have some fun along the way. Today, we have a very exciting topic coming our way. We will talk about reinventing yourself and your career. So I would say this conversation is for anybody who has this what if on their mind, because maybe my guest might answer some of the person's questions. So I have no other than Joanne Lipman, and you might know her because she's the best-selling author of Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work, and the number one bestseller, that's what she said. Joanne is also a pioneering journalist and has served as editor-in-chief of USA Today, USA Today Network, Condé Nast Portfolio, and the Wall Street Journal's Weekend Journal. She has led those organizations to six Pulitzer Prizes. She's also an on-air contributor at CNBC, as well as a journalism lecturer at Yale University. She was also named the Distinguished Journalism Fellow at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study. Now she's based in New York in the U.S. And I'm very, very excited to talk to you today. How are you doing? Doing very well. It's so nice to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Oh, perfect. And to get to know you a little bit better, I prepared a few rapid-fire questions. Short questions, short answers. Are you ready? I am ready. Go for it. Perfect. You are a very successful journalist and writer, among other things. Have you always wanted to become a professional writer, or what was your dream when you were a little girl? My dream was to be a spy when I was a little girl. I read the book Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh, which is about an 11-year-old spy. I read this when I was seven years old. And Harriet, in this book, she spy, spies on her neighbors and her friends and her teachers, and she writes it all down in a composition notebook. And I asked my mom at seven years old to buy me a notebook so I could be a spy. And, and I spent my elementary school years basically listening in on my big sisters and their boyfriends and my neighbors and my teachers. And that is actually what led to my love of writing. Wow. And you just mentioned your mom. How would your family and friends describe you in just one word? <laughs> I would say curious. And Journalist. enthusiastic, enthusiastic, if I had to have another word. Nice. And say, what is the best advice you've been given in your personal or in your professional life? The best advice I ever got, certainly professionally, was make a decision. The reason that is such great advice is because as a journalist, as an editor, we're faced with a million decisions every single day. And then as a leader, which I became a leader in the newsroom, You have many, many decisions. And I had a wonderful boss who I questioned one of his decisions once. I said, why did you decide it this way and not this other way that I think I probably would have gone? And he said, the key is make a decision, 
the worst thing you can do is to be uncertain, unsure of yourself, particularly when you're leading an organization. You don't want to be wishy-washy. You want to make that decision and understand that, you know, that's the best way to move forward. The other piece related, uh, a piece of advice that I try to live by, which is if it won't matter five years from now, it doesn't matter today. Intriguing. So if, you're, if you're if you're stressing and spiraling about some something that's going on or a work thing or something somebody said to you, if if it won't matter five years from now, just like let it go. Love it. I guess it's easier said than done. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have to remind yourself, but that's why it's such good advice. It's like you have to tell it to yourself. And you mentioned before leading. And what is the best quality in a leader? I do think in addition to being able to make a decision and having a clear vision, empathy. As a leader, I always feel like I am there to help the people who work on my team to excel, to be their best selves and to do their best work and to support them in doing that. Who is one of your role models? My role models, well, started obviously with my own parents, definitely. My dad was a businessman and my mom stayed at home, but boy, she was a force of nature. Had she been in the workforce, she would have ruled the world. And I'm one of three sisters. We had no no brothers. Uh, And we were told our entire lives that you can do anything, you can be anything, you can choose any path. And by the way, that path could choose the path I chose, but it could also be the path if you wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. Like they were just very, very supportive of whatever it was that we wanted to do. And then work-wise, I had amazing work mentors, fantastic mentors. I spent the first 22 years of my career at the Wall Street, they were all men actually, because it was mostly men when I joined. And they could not have also been more supportive. They were actually more ambitious for me than I was for myself. They saw leadership qualities and and qualities for, you know, to, to do bigger and better and more ambitious work than I realized, than I saw in myself. And I'm very grateful to them. And I still channel them every day. Wow. That is intriguing. I have one last question for the rapid fire. What is one thing that people often get wrong about you? Wow. I don't, I don't know. Probably think people think before they meet me, I think people think I'm a lot tougher than I actually am. Thank you so much for sharing. And to dive in, I would love to learn more about you and about your journey. And since it's about reinvention today, I would like to ask you to share, say, the key reinventions of your life that led you to where you are today. On the personal front, very recently we had that anniversary of 9-11. I was in the World Trade Center on 9-11 when that first plane hit and was was just a, a brutal experience that nobody, that I will not share, that nobody should ever have to have to go through. But it was one of those moments where your life becomes very clear to you. Our office at the Wall Street Journal was across the street and it was almost destroyed that day. And so the next year we were basically working out of other kinds of office space. It was a very stressful year. I was also overseeing at the time this massive reinvention of the Wall Street Journal, redesigning it and adding different sections. And, and it, was, it was a very big undertaking. 
And it was one of those things, it was just a crazy year. And but within the year, less than a year later, and my kids were still little at this point, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And at that point, my kids are in elementary school. You know, my goal was like, oh my God, like I want to see them graduate from high school. Yes. But here we are, years later, I am still here, knock on everything. And in fact, a couple of years ago, was able to dance the night away, my daughter's wedding. My kids are grown now. And so I'm very grateful for every, every day. But every one of those kinds of changes. I have a chapter actually in Next on what's called post-traumatic growth, which is we all know about post-traumatic stress. But in fact, experts have found only recently is a very recent field that after a trauma, like a pandemic or like going through 9-11 or going through cancer, it's very hard to bounce back to where you were before. But they found that people who go through these kinds of traumas will often what they call bounce forward. They think about they're open to new ideas, new paths. They, they try new things. They feel like they're stronger than they ever realized they were. And they very often do make a change. And in my case, I made a change after I recovered from breast cancer to leave the Wall Street Journal, which I loved my job, but I was offered this amazing opportunity to create a magazine for Condé Nast, which is the publisher of Vanity Fair and Vogue and The New Yorker. And they wanted me to create a business magazine that would be the companion magazine to those. And so I took a leap uh, after that. And, and then from there, it led to the everything else in my career, including writing books, including going on to Gannett, which is the parent company where I was the chief content officer and editor-in-chief of USA Today and, and overseeing the 110 newspapers in that network. And one question, after having this traumatic experience, I also know from my coaching that that's oftentimes a moment that people get much more clarity on their purpose because somehow they see the big picture and they probably follow your initial advice of what is really important in five years from now. Yes. Was that then also that you found more of your purpose? And if so, what is your purpose now? Yes, I would 100% agree. It clarifies your goals personally and professionally. And I think for every step of the way for me, The clarity came in first, actually, was in terms of work-life balance, in, in, in terms of making sure I'm there for my kids, making sure I'm there for my husband. And at the same time, clarity and purpose, which don't think that my purpose professionally has changed all that much. I really grew up, you know, from a very, very young age, really, really wanting to make a difference through journalism wanting to, as we say, and it's a cliche, but it is true. You want to shine a light on dark, in dark corners. You want to expose what needs to be exposed. You want to elevate what should be elevated. And you want to be able to tell stories that enlighten and inform or just delight. And, and that purpose has not changed through all of the things that I, I have done. But I will tell you, you were so correct about this idea of trauma And that was actually not trauma per se, but, but having some major event in your life like that lead to change. That was the genesis of, of Next. The reason that I wrote the book Next was, it was a little over three years ago, it was the pandemic. It yes. was, if you recall, the beginning of the pandemic, way, way, way at the start of the pandemic, we all thought it was temporary. Like the world <laughs> shut down, everybody got sent home. 
And if you put yourself back there, it's hard to remember now, but in that first couple of days, we were like, everybody was like, okay, the world's going to shut down for a week or two. It'll all be back to normal by Easter in a couple of weeks. Yes. And, and about a month later, it, it became extremely clear that we didn't know when this was going to end. We didn't know what the world was going to look like when it ended, but we knew that there was going to have to be some new normal. And I literally woke up in the middle of the night with this aha moment that we needed to find the new normal. There was no guidebook to help us to get there. And I woke up, I'm like, I have to write that. That's the guidebook that I need to write since it doesn't exist. And that was the genesis of Next. And, and while it was inspired by the pandemic, what it really is about is change, navigating change. And we all go through change, whether it's you get married or you have a baby or you quit your job or you move to a new location. You're going to experience multiple changes throughout your life. And each one is going to have an impact on the direction that you're taking in your life. And I really want to help all of us to navigate those kinds of life changes and professional changes with much more clarity. What is important about this clarity when navigating changes? Like what can we win here? So this is what I, what I learned when I, when I do, dove into this. So I interviewed all of these people and I asked them, walk me through the process for you. And this was everybody from people who had career reinventions to people who had experienced failure and had to figure out how do I find my way after failure. And even people who had these life-changing sort of aha moments where they're like yes. struck And it changes their life. And I asked them all, walk me through the process. And I was really struck by the similarity in the steps they went through. And then when I spoke to these experts, whether you're talking neuroscientists or psychologists or management people, they also, when I said, walk me through the process, they used different terminology, but everybody was essentially describing the same process. So I've distilled that into what I call reinvention roadmap, the reinvention roadmap It's got four steps and we all go through them. It is search, struggle, stop, solution. And I can walk you through those four steps. I would like that because, yeah, yeah, because I'm very curious about that. And I guess the search, is it like conscious? Is it subconscious? Are we always searching? When do we search? Like there's so much I need to know. I love this question. Okay, so the search, the first step, the search is when you're collecting information, you're collecting experiences, and very often it is subconscious. You very often don't realize that all of these experiences and information that you're inhaling is actually going to lead ultimately to a transition, to a change, but you very often you don't know it. There's one question on the search. Am I yes. always searching or only if I'm in a situation where I'm not happy or satisfied? We are always searching. We, always. Are, we are always searching. It's just that you don't necessarily know. You're filing this information, these experiences, you're filing it away. Again, very often it is not intentional. So then that ultimately takes you to the second stage, which is the struggle. Now the struggle, this is a tough one because We don't like to talk about it because the struggle is kind of miserable. This is that phase where you're disconnecting from your previous identity. You haven't quite figured out the new one and you're in the middle and you feel stuck and you feel like you're standing still or stuck in the mud. 
and it's really uncomfortable. It can feel really miserable. And we have a real problem society-wise in that when we tell great stories of people who reinvent themselves, we skip over this yes. step. We don't talk about it. And the, as a result, when we're in this struggle, we feel like it's only us. And you feel like everybody else is on a glide path to success and only we are struggling. And it makes us feel bad about ourselves. It makes us feel like there's something, there's something wrong with me. Like everybody else has their act together except me. And the fact is everybody goes through it. And I really want to make sure that people understand the struggle is normal. And in fact, all of my research shows that even though you feel like you're standing still, this is actually where there's a tremendous amount of work being done beneath the surface and you actually are moving forward. Can you put a timestamp on it? How long does this struggle typically last? There's no typical. So I talked to people for whom this was, you know, a period of weeks or months. I talked to people for whom it was a period of decades. So, you know, it, it is very dependent on your personal situation in this case. Generally, it's somewhere in between a couple of weeks versus decades. It, the struggle very often, it doesn't stop. It doesn't end until you reach that third stage, which is the stop. And the stop is an interesting one. The stop is when you are pulled out of your routines. Again, it could be something, you know, I quit my job or I lost my job. It could be I got cancer. It could be I got married. You, right. It's, but it's whatever it is, it pulls you out of your normal everyday routine. And only then do you get the perspective that you need to be able to synthesize all of this information and experiences from the previous two steps. And it, then it clarifies where you're going. And that leads you to that fourth and final stage, which is the solution, which is wherever it is you're pivoting to. Wow. Do we always go through four stages or is the majority of journeys um, that ends within the search bucket? It's a bit cyclical, right? In that, first of all, you're going to go through this process more than once in your life, almost inevitably. But also, you know, sometimes the can go, th can go through the steps in a different order. So for example, People who, who go through a sudden trauma, they're in an accident or something like that, you know, that it is, they, they are thrown immediately. Yeah, that's their stop, right? They, they kind of start the, the phase all over again. So it could be in different order and, or you can repeat a stage. So, um, uh, but I think that where the clarity comes in is understanding, particularly when you're in that, those middle stages, right? When we tell these stories to ourselves, it, we have what I call, we fall prey to what I call the Cinderella myth. And the Cinderella myth is that change is supposed to happen overnight. And if you think about it culturally, and this is a global phenomenon, culturally, we feel like it's supposed to be overnight and abrupt, right? It's Cinderella and it's the frog and the prince. But even as grown-ups, you know, it's it's American Idol in the US, it's who wants to be a millionaire. Yes. It's these 
reality shows where you instantly... But, but the story is much more fun if we say David Beckham was an awesome football player versus, oh, he really trained, 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 trained and spent 10,000 hours becoming that good because that means I could put in the hard work as well. And I like the other story sometimes better. Everybody likes <laughs> the other story better. I mean, you think about, you know, in business, we tell these stories like Mark Zuckerberg, he went from college kid to tech billionaire. Boom, right? Like it just happens. Yeah. Stories, though, end up being really damaging because they do make us feel like there's something wrong with us. And that's why I found it so important. Also, just encouraging and very helpful to understand that you have these stages, particularly the struggle and then yes. the stop that everybody goes through and that we need to normalize that and to be able for people to understand that that is a normal and in fact, it doesn't feel like it, but it is actually a healthy process that we're going through. And when we are in this struggle phase, because I can imagine that, say, in the pandemic, somebody is in their job and it's like, oh, this job is not really most fun. The culture is a little bit toxic. This is not the place where I want to be. So they start thinking, where could I go instead? What could I be doing? Maybe in, they really want to change industries. And then they change and they see, oh, the grass is not greener on the other side. That's why I said you're going to go through this process more than once, and you may take you know, two steps forward, one step backwards. During the pandemic, for example, there's a couple that's in the book where she worked in an office and as a professional in a job, and her husband ran a restaurant. And during the pandemic, both of them got sent home. The restaurant closed at the beginning of the pandemic, and they were at home. They had a new baby. And he started spending much more time like in the garden and doing things outside. And it made him realize he really loved this stuff. He had been an environmental sciences major back in college and he realized how much he loved the outdoors. And he and his wife decided during the pandemic, they would start a landscaping business. And so they went into business together and they really enjoyed it. And then things lightened up and the woman's like, well, I got to go back to my real life as my corporate job. And she did. And she realized when she went back to her corporate job, though, that actually she missed all the work she was doing as an entrepreneur with her husband. And she quit the corporate job and came back. And now they have a thriving business that they can run and they can spend more time with their family as well. So, you know, you're going to make U-turns and different turns. Yes. Um, and it can take a while. I have to tell you one of my favorite examples, if I can share a couple of examples of how this works. Yeah, the um, examples are amazing. One of my favorites is, so when I was a young reporter, I covered the advertising business. So we're going back 30 plus years. Back in the 80s, if anybody remembers this, the burger wars between Burger King and McDonald's. And so I was writing about this and I went to go interview the copywriter, the advertising guy who ran the Burger King account. And I show up at his office and I start to interview him about Burger King. And he says to me, you know, what I really want to be is a novelist. And I'm thinking to myself, like, sure, like you and everybody else wants to be a novelist, right? And he's like, oh, no, no, I got to publish. And he gives me this book. So I read the book back then. I don't remember the details, but I recently tracked down the review of this book. The first two words of this review were abysmally dumb. Mm. And the last two words of this review were deserves drowning. So he was the epitome, ouch, right? He was the epitome of the struggling writer 
Okay, fast forward to today. Do you know who that guy is, that copywriter? It's James Patterson. He has written over 100 best-selling books, something like 400 million copies of his books sold. I went back to James Patterson and I said, walk me through your process. Like what happened? And he followed every step of that reinvention roadmap, every step. His search was while he was at the ad agency, when he was trying to start writing like on the side, his struggle came when he started publishing books, but he was still at the ad agency and he started writing books and he did not get a lot of success, like with that book that he gave me. And he struggled with that. His struggle even intensified once he kind of found his voice and his book started selling and he became a best-selling writer. He's still at the ad agency. And he said to me, I really struggle because I didn't know, was I really good enough to quit a steady job with a paycheck to really try and make it as a writer? And he struggled with this for a number of years. His stop, and I love his story of his stop. So he, he'd had these best-selling books, but he still had his job. He was 49 years old at this point, and it was, it was a summer day. He had a house on the beach. He's coming back from the beach in New Jersey, so he's on, like, the Jersey Turnpike in standstill traffic with every other schmuck who's coming back on Sunday yeah. night from the beach. Standstill traffic. And as he's stuck in traffic, he's looking on the other side of the road toward the beach, right? People heading toward the beach. And he says to me, and the cars are going by like, whoosh, whoosh. Mm -hmm. There's no traffic on the other side. And he said, that moment, he said, I said to myself, I am on the wrong side of the road. And he went back. And shortly afterward, he quit his job and became a full-time writer. But he was almost 50 years old by the time that he quit. So the one question that really is popping up in my mind is like, when should you take this leap of faith and jump ship and try this idea you have where you don't know if it will lead to success? Yeah. So in that search phase, I have a toolkit of a dozen steps and, and there are a few you want to take when you're in that search phase. Rule one is like, don't just quit your job. <laughs> don't like, today I'm a journalist. Tomorrow, I'd like to be a ballerina, so I'm going to quit my job. Like, don't do that. But there are steps you can take. A very early step, it's, it's a, uh, borrowing a psychological term called possible selves. You want to imagine what you might be, what you could be. And you want to imagine it fully. It's not just sort of a random daydream. It is like, how would this feel? How would I live? How would other people see me? You really want to put yourself in that mindset. But that alone is also not enough. What you want to do then is take action. So you want to take a course. You want to read up. You want to shadow somebody who's already in this job. You want to seek information, seek experiences, do something on the side, you know, do this thing as a hobby. Uh, it's, it's what I call move before you move, which is yeah. you're going to start um, doing whatever it is you're leading to before you actually quit your job. And often it was like a lifetime of experiences uh, that led them to, to, to that reinvention. There's a, a wonderful woman who's in the book. She's in my great example. I have a chapter on failure. How do you come back from failure? Her son is stricken with cancer and she had no, she didn't have the insurance to treat him. So he goes with her ex-husband who's in Amsterdam. He goes to get treated in Amsterdam you know, she relies on, on acquaintances to follow him to Amsterdam and borrow somebody's apartment. 
but that was her stop. It just pulled her out of her routine, right? She had been trying to get this business off the ground and with some limited success. She's just there for her son. And she suddenly has this creative blossoming. And she has this brainstorm about sort of a whole new line and a whole way of approaching her business. And she comes back again, her son recovered, thank God. She comes back and launches this new line and it is a massive hit. If anybody watches HSN, she's actually one of HSN's biggest stars. Her name is Marla Ginsburg, but her line is called Marla Winley. Oh, wow. And it's a multi-million dollar international brand right now. And you know, all those stories, I hear so much grit and resilience because it also takes something to really stick to your dreams and those ideas, especially because what you said rings home to me. It's like, who is talking about struggling? If you believe it's only you and then you still stick to your plans and your dreams, that's very courageous. How can people really make that happen? How can they grow their resilience to really believe in themselves? Do you have any guidance on that? You know, one of the most powerful ideas, and I put this in my toolkit as well, this did come from trauma psychologists. So trauma psychologists have found that people who do achieve post-traumatic growth, very often it takes helping, like it takes not just themselves, but it takes a village. And particularly it takes what they call, and I borrowed this phrase, an expert companion. So an expert companion is somebody who knows you well, who has an objective view of you, because none of us have an objective view of ourselves. And almost all of us, we, we have these innate strengths and talents that we don't even recognize. It's either because they're so natural to us that we don't see them, or we, we know that we have them, but we think it comes so easily to us. We're like, everybody can do that. And what your expert companion can do is reflect back to you, your strengths, your talents, and even your interests. And I think all of us need an expert companion. It really does help for you to figure out how to and when to make that next step. And I will say in my own case, my expert companion was my husband. As I mentioned, I was at the Wall Street Journal for many years. I loved, loved my career there. No intention of leaving. And then Condé Nast approached me about creating a new magazine from scratch that would be this companion to Vanity Fair and Vogue and The New Yorker. And it was such an amazing, amazing opportunity. But at the same time, I was, I was literally paralyzed for several months. At one point, though, one day, my husband says to me, he said, you know, when you talk about this mythical, non-existent magazine, your face lights up in a way that I have not seen in years. He said, you may not see this, but I see this excitement. He did not give me advice. He did not tell me what to do. But what he did is he simply reflected back to me yes. what he was seeing. And that helped me say, okay, I'm ready. This is the, this is my decision. And that's how I made my decision. This is also what I see a lot in coaching. Cause it's like, people already have the answers within them, but sometimes you just cannot see them. So it's like this reflecting back. And this is what you're saying. I see what's happening in your eyes. I see your smile. There's already this hunch in us on what is the best choice for us. That's a great point because your expert companion could be somebody in your life. Like for me, my husband, it could be a friend or colleague, but for a lot of people, it could be a coach, it could be a career coach. 
a life coach, it might be a therapist, right? It, well, whoever it is, it is somebody who knows you, who has your interests at heart, and who has an objective view of you. I find that extremely powerful. You said before, it's like we don't talk enough about struggling. What is your expert advice on people who struggle? I know from myself, I've struggled before. There are bad days when I just want to be like, screw this, I do something else, I'm done with this. It's like, if I don't get enough sleep, that that's when I'm like, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. <laughs> oh, me too. That's so true. So true. My advice really is as painful as this seems, lean into the struggle, know that it is actually part of the process. There actually has been academic research done on this. This was fascinating because a totally different environment with UBS. Bank managers were shown a video that showed that stress was good for the body and the brain and that the struggle was actually a productive part of your, your work experience. And when they came back weeks later, these same managers They viewed stress as a positive. And not only that, they had higher work satisfaction and interestingly, lower incidences of health issues. So their health was better and their attitude was better. And basically it was all positives when they realized that it was okay and they were encouraged to sort of lean into this feeling as opposed to fighting it. Wow. So that means if the next time when I feel I'm struggling, I should just be nice with myself and yeah. be like, Johanna, that's fine if you're struggling. You can have a bad day. Relax, right? Give myself a break and maybe even tell somebody else also to normalize the whole journey. Yes. So first, you hit every single point. This is so right. Okay. First of all, you want to normalize the journey. Also, you want to be kind to yourself. That's so important. But also, you just kind of referenced, take a break. That is actually another one of the steps that I talk about in the toolkit is how important it is because we all have this tendency when we're struggling to double down and double down and double down and just work harder and harder and harder and just get more and more and more frustrated. <laughs> Walk away, like, you know, go exercise, go watch a bad movie, do anything, take yes. a break. There's a really famous study that everybody knows about because Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this study of violinists and it led to his very yeah. famous 10,000 hours to become an expert. But the study that he's referencing there, the 10,000 hours was actually only one piece of the finding of that study. That study is a guy named Kay Anders Erickson, a psychologist. The study was of, of professional violinists and what he looked at was what's the difference between professionals and amateurs, like people who were, became at the very top of their field versus amateurs. And he found that there were three differences, and one was the 10,000 hours. The other two, though, these are equally at least as important, maybe more so. And one was that when they did practice, when they practiced, these people only practiced an hour and a half at a time, the experts, And they practiced with great intentionality, which is really important. Total focus, right? It wasn't just like scattershot, like I better put the hours in. And then the second piece was they took a break after their 90 minutes of practicing. And they didn't do this for more than three times a day. They didn't work, in other words, more than four and a half hours a day. But they took breaks in between this very focused work. And both of those elements are really, really important, particularly if you're going through the struggle and you're going through change. You can do your focused work for 90 minutes, which is what I do. Like if I have writer's block, yeah. 
I focus for 90 minutes, but at the end of 90 minutes, you must stop. It gives yourself an artificial deadline, but it also means that you're working toward that deadline. And at the deadline, you must stop and you must take a break. And both of those elements are really, really highly, highly effective. But taking a break is huge. In your day, your nights, your weekends, there's research. I wrote a whole piece this summer that was very, very popular, not surprisingly, because the piece was all about the research that shows that people who take vacation time are more successful and get promoted more frequently than those who do not take their vacation time. Okay, so now everybody needs to take a vacation. <laughs> yes. I only have three short questions left. What is coming up next for you? What is the next reinvention in Joanne Lipman's life? I don't know. Yeah, this is this is literally what I learned from my book is that it's okay that I don't know. So many people, including myself, have ended up in very unexpected places. And so whatever it is, I'm looking forward to it, but I can't tell you what it is. I always like to ask my guests, who else should I have on the show? Every person who I mentioned today, you should have joined you. You know, Marla Wynn Ginsburg, who I mentioned, is amazing. She's great. Anybody who I mentioned in the book, they'd all be fantastic. Perfect. And everybody who's listening, they should all buy next The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. How else can people stay in touch with you? Yeah, so you can definitely find me. I've, my website is joannelipman.com. And through my website, you can see where I'm speaking or ask me to come speak at your organization. You can reach me. There's a way to reach me on email. And I would love to hear from everybody. I, I always enjoy and I always respond to people who, who write to me. Thank you so much for joining me. I feel inspired now for more change coming my way. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And please don't forget to follow us on social at Reaching Your Goals Podcast and a Daily Guide. If you want to hear from us in between episodes, please sign up for our newsletter at delegate.substack.com and if I can ever be of help with my coaching add-on, just drop me an email or reach out to me via LinkedIn. With that, we are done for today. We are one step closer to reaching your goals. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.